performing a lot of the guitar stuff on there. It's a lot of, you know, the guitar riffs and the saxophone. That sounds like a Seinfeld theme song. Boom. But don't boom That's what we should do. We should go back in and take out the sax and guitar bass guitar riffs and put in the Seinfeld thing. Yeah. We're gonna have to rescue your daughter. Sales are doing really well From shock treatment to Jason X To Police Academy 6 This is Sequel Cast And they are unsurpassed At following a franchise Until the better end This is Sequel Cast And your hosts have asked That I inform you that the show will The theme song to the sequel cast is performed and written by Mark with the C. Check out his latest album, Motherfuckers Be Bullshitting, at markwiththec.bandcamp.com. Now we return you to the sequel cast. I do. I even got a special one for the occasion with a hollow point. Look, make sure it blows the back of my goddamn head out. Do the job right. Every single day I wake up and I think of a reason not to do it every single day. And you know why I don't do it? This is going to make you laugh. You know why I don't do it? The job. Doing the job. Now, that's the reason. You want to die. I don't. I'm not afraid of it. I ain't afraid of it. You take my gun. Don't nibble on the barrel. Pull the trigger. Go ahead, pal. Be my gift. Go ahead if you're furious. You shouldn't tempt me, man. Put it in your mouth. Bullet might go through your, your ear and not kill you. Yeah, under the chin. Yeah, 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 under the chin. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a show about movies in a franchise, one movie at a time. Uh, we have a website at sequelcast.com where you can check out past episodes. And uh, we're currently kicking off new franchise. We're looking at the Lethal Weapon Quadrilogy for uh, the month of March, for the most part. And uh, this week we're looking at the first film in the series, not surprisingly called Lethal Weapon. Uh, released in 1987, it was directed by Richard Donner. Written by Shane Black, uh, his first professional screenplay, believe it or not. And it stars Mel Gibson, Danny Glover. Uh, the bad guy is Gary Busey. Uh, has music by Michael Kamen, Eric Clapton, David Sanborn. Cinematography by Stephen Goldblatt. And um, it runs about 110 minutes long. And uh, on a budget of $15 million, had a uh, domestic U.S. box office gross of $120 million. And that's unadjusted. So that's very, very good uh, for the time. Um, with me is Thrasher. Hello, everybody. And, uh, BJ. Hi, guys. So, Lethal Weapon. I, I guess before we talk, uh, about the movie, was this a franchise overall that uh, you were familiar with growing up as a kid? Would you watch this with your, your dad or something, or? Uh, it's, it's a franchise, if you grew up in the 80s, awareness of this franchise was pretty much inescapable. It set so much of of what would become kind of standard for uh, late 80s, early 90s action movies. You you just, you you were aware that there was this thing called Lethal Weapon, which was apparently bigger than itself. Right, and you know, speaking of that first film, it came out in 1987, and uh, in the United States it was the number nine film of the year. Above it was a Stakeout, a number eight, and number ten was a Witches of Eastwick, which starred uh, Jack Nicholson and Cher, among other people. That held two spots there? Uh, Lethal Weapon was number nine. Stakeout was eight, and Witches of Eastwick was ten. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said that was ten and seven. Or oh, no, of I'm sorry. But, I uh, thought the top... some sort of occult shenanigans had caused it to, co- to co-locate between two places on the chart. Oh, no, but uh, to give you an idea, the top films of 87 were Three Men and a Baby at number one, Fatal Attraction at number two, and Beverly Hills Cop 2 at number three. And that Lethal Weapon was down there at number, number nine, which is not too shabby at all for the first movie in a franchise. Um, it even made more that year than Predator did, or even the original Robocop. And more than the James Bond film that came out, Living Daylights, with Timothy Dalton in the U.S. Well, Timothy Dalton. Poor Timothy Dalton. Um... 
Yeah, I think I wouldn't mind doing James Bond in the sequel cast. I'm just not sure how you'd do it because I would not want to spend half a year watching James Bond movies. We have to pick an actor, an era, or like one film right. to to typify each era. I think you'd have to focus just on an actor and do those series of films and kind of break it up. But um, yeah, we're talking about Lethal Weapon, and you know, at this time. Uh, the director, Richard Donner, had directed Superman and part of Superman 2, directed Goonies, uh, Lady Hawk, uh, and The Omen, you know, who had done a lot of hit films. Uh, Danny Glover was known mainly for, I don't know, Color Purple, but that wasn't like a huge hit, that was more of a, a dramatic thing. And uh, Mel Gibson, by this time, had already done all three uh, Mad Max films which uh, I covered with Sabrina Miller when uh, she was a co-host on the show uh, for a little stretch of time there. So, um, all right. What was I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> well, we might as well get right into the action because Lethal Weapon doesn't spare us anything and goes right into the action. Well, I think before that, uh, I did want to touch on, for me... I when I sat down to watch uh, Lethal Weapon one for the sequel cast, I thought I had not seen this film all the way through, and uh, I was mistaken. I had seen it when I was very young, because I, I recalled the the climax of the film. But um, yeah, I mean Mel Gibson this was before Gary Busey went crazy. Uh, yeah, about a year or two before. Yep, yeah, before he had a motorcycle accident that caused him brain damage. And um, even though he's a, a fully functioning adult and has acted in, in several films since and all these things. Yeah, he's not the person he used to be. I mean, Gary Busey was nominated for an Oscar playing Buddy Holly in the Buddy Holly story. And Gary they, Busey played Buddy Holly? Yeah. Whoa. And he sings, too. And uh, it's actually pretty good. I know it sounds horrendous if you think of the modern day uh, Gary Busey, but he was a real serious uh, middle-aged actor at the time. And uh, I think before we get into talking about the film, I think... We need to talk about uh, something I call the Woody Allen phenomenon, but it's something where an actor's personal uh, issues in an actor's personal life tend to define how someone looks at that person. Uh, with Mel Gibson, I'm referring to, um, I guess what I don't know if it was proven or not, but allegations that he beat one of his wives or living girlfriends or whatever, and he also did say a lot of anti-Semitic remarks while drunk and pulled over. Um, and because of that, I have some friends, you know, that just refuse to see any Mel Gibson film, past or present. Uh, I think even though actors can do stupid things in their private lives, um, and maybe this is just because I went to an art school, but you need to kind of separate that from their work, and I think you can still enjoy their work without thinking like, oh, that's a guy who's uh, anti-Semitic sometimes or whatever, you know? Well, you know what? Don't, don't avoid seeing it. For Mel Gibson, watch it for Danny Glover. Or just think about it as this is probably before Mel Gibson cracked and started going <laughs> whack. You know, this is yeah, before yeah. all this this terrible things happened to to both of them. It's really, I believe this is before uh, Danny Glover fought the Predator. Uh, yes. Or is this after? No, this is a few years before uh, Danny Glover fought Predator and Predator 2. And you know, I totally was expecting Mel, uh, Mel Gibson to come into that movie, too. <laughs> it would have been great. It would have been Lethal Weapon versus Predator. That would have been amazing. Yeah, Predator has a very bizarre view of the future, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, with this uh, Lethal Weapon, uh, it, it's notable, I think, in that it's a buddy cop movie, and you had buddy cop movies before this one. I'm thinking of like uh, 48 Hours with Eddie Murphy and um, Nick Nolte, although I guess Eddie Classic. Murphy's not a cop in that one, but they're certainly working together to crack a case or two. And uh, Exactly, no, that is a classic. And uh, the interesting thing here is uh, well, the actors are, are a bit older, especially in the case of Danny Glover, whose character is celebrating his 50th birthday. But also, um, you have a white guy and a black guy, uh, and uh, the black guy, Danny Glover, who plays... What's that noise? Oh, uh, that is the shower running in the next room. Okay. I will do my best to compensate. Sure. Uh, so, um, an interesting thing about Lethal Weapon is you have a, a black character, uh, played by Danny Glover, who he's older and he's in the suburbs. 
and the guy who's crazy living by himself watching cartoons is the white guy, uh, Riggs, played by Mel Gibson. Well, ha- had there been a history of the stereotype of black guys living alone watching Warner Brothers cartoons? You know, had maybe that been not, a film stereotype? Maybe not watching Warner Brothers cartoons, but I- I'm thinking of things more like Rush Hour, where Chris Tucker is a black guy that's all crazy and hot under the collar. Oh, yeah. And uh, you even think of things released around this time, like uh, Total Recall or something, where you have the black uh, taxi cab driver. Oh, and, yeah. And the portrayal of that is very, very... Um, of its time, I guess. I don't think you could get away with that now, but well, something I like about this movie is that there is that their race, the race of Gibson and Glover, doesn't enter into their relationship or their career as cops, and it doesn't come into any conversation. It's never even brought up. Really, they act like normal moderny people who who don't give too big of a deal about about race. They're two they're two cops that have a job, and that's more important than anything else. Right. And, uh, and yet, as we were chatting a bit before the show, Thrasher, these characters aren't, don't just bicker the whole time. They do actually have personalities. They have a, they have a you know, character arc. I mean, their relationship yeah. follows a nice trajectory, which I found so refreshing. And um, I guess before we start talking, which version of the film did you watch? Because there's the regular one and there's a director's cut. You know, I don't know. Did your version? I, I, I was unaware. It, what is there? What's the big difference between the two? Um, a big difference is a scene early on where Riggs is facing off against a sniper at an elementary school. Okay, I must. Uh, then I, I did not see that version. Okay. No, but, but I think I'd like to see that. That sounds an interesting. Uh... Yeah, it's a different introductory scene for Riggs. Although they keep the Christmas tree stuff, um, where he's trying to. Uh, pretending like he's buying cocaine off a Christmas tree salesman. Uh, but right, you know, in Lethal Weapon, you know, has a very famous line, I'm too old for this, but does, doesn't the line in later movies become I'm too old for this shit, or is it a line uh, that's just misquoted? That's the line, no, that's the line he used uh, at least, I think, three times in the movie, just, I'm too old for this shit. Okay, but sometimes he says, I think I'm just keep cutting out the shit because, you know, they have to edit it for television. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. I'm too old for this Saturday. <laughs> I'm too old for this spit. I'm too old for this soup. <laughs> I'm too old for this suit would be a good one. Suit, yes. That's pretty good. Um, so the beginning of the film, I think, is very striking in that you have a, a stripper. Now, you don't know if she's a stripper at the time, but you have a, a topless woman in a fancy hotel, and she. it looks like she just falls out of this window... Well, after she does a line of coke. After doing a line of coke, which is very typical of an 80s movie. Yeah, and uh, very typical of the 80s. And the soundtrack in this movie has lots of saxophone, um, which I think is really humorous, and it's not supposed to be humorous. Well, it, it seems dated, because it's almost... It's almost like something out of like an, a, a kind of cheesy 70s hard-boiled detective thing. But you know, Eric Clapton did a lot of the music in this. You're right, he did, and... Um, performed a lot of the guitar stuff on there. It's a lot of, you know, the guitar riffs and the saxophone. And it, that sounds like a Seinfeld theme song. Boom. But don't boom that's what we should do. We should go back in and take out the sax and guitar bass guitar riffs and put in the Seinfeld thing. Yeah. We gotta have to rescue your daughter. <laughs> but um I mean the the saxophone music by itself is kind of cheesy, but like where they throw it in you have, like, um, Murtaugh taking a bath, and his family interrupts him to wish him happy birthday, and he's like, I'm getting too old for this shit. And then you have this very sad saxophone. And that doesn't sound like a saxophone, but... That sounds like a bad trombone. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like me to unpack my... Yeah, here's what I'll do. Next episode, I'll unpack my saxophone, and I'll play some... Some Lethal Weapon sax riffs as transitions. That sounds good. I have a feeling the future Lethal Weapon movies will... Because uh, the only ones I've seen before are this one and number four. So I have a feeling the saxophone will be a running musical uh, motif through the films. But, um, right. So you get the introduction of uh, Murtaugh, who's a family man. He's turning 50. He's been on the force for a long time. And uh, on the other hand, in the, in the director's cut, you get a scene where... Uh, uh, Mel Gibson as uh, Riggs. I don't. I always get Murtaugh and Riggs confused. Who is who? 
but um, I'll just say Mel Gibson because that's easier for me to remember. He goes and he gets a call that there's a sniper at an elementary school and and he, he goes up there to this playground at the elementary school and he sees that a cop has been shot and killed and like a nine-year-old has been shot and injured. Mm. And, uh, you know, Mel Gibson being the, as a Riggs, being the loose cannon that he is, walks in there with the gun with his pistol in his pocket and just stands there by the swings as the sniper is taking pot shots at him. He's not trying to hide. He's just out there in the open. And he shoots and he takes the guy down. It's a very heroic moment. It's a him by himself. And um, it's, I guess it's a, maybe it was taken out of the original cut of the film because it's showing him as more serious instead of kind of the wild, I, crazy, funny I guy. because it's got this- it's got a sniper shooting at kids. That's pretty heavy. That too, yeah. And you don't, you don't. A kid doesn't die. A kid gets shot, and you don't even see the kid get shot. You just see him take the kid off, and um, and, and it's a great moment where uh, Riggs is walking off, and then he's asking him how old was the kid, and they said nine, and then that convinces him to go into the fray and risk his life and be pretty selfless. Um, yeah, I think it it changes the character though, the perception of the character when you get that kind of heroic moment so early, especially for um, Mel Gibson's character. And his character is very unhinged for you know most of the rest of the film, right? I mean, he's just so off. You know, he's got like you know PTSD or something, and he's dealing with it the whole film. So if you have him in such a heroic moment, you really got to build up to that. It's hard to start off with it and and get people to. Because if I see him doing that before I see him trying to, you know, kill himself and stuff, I, I don't know exactly where you're talking about this falling into the, the, the movie. This is before he tries to. This is like right. This happens right before he uh, yeah, exactly. does the Christmas tree bust. Uh, so pretty early on in the picture, because uh, it totally changes the character, and then it doesn't. The whole everything that comes after, I think, would, wouldn't make sense anymore. You're right. And, um, how do you go from being super awesome heroic guy to trying to kill yourself? Right, and uh, you know you can probably even watch that scene on YouTube and as a standalone scene, it might even make more sense or work better. Um, Even if, yeah, they couldn't have put it later in the film because it's so much about uh, Riggs and Morta working together. But um, one thing, watching this, I was really reminded of of a later film, uh, Eight Millimeter, starring Nicolas Cage, uh, in that a lot of the plot deals with a cop's partner whose daughter has gotten into hardcore pornography and drugs, and he has to kind of investigate what's happening. Although in 8mm, which, you know, didn't come out until the late 90s, it's more about investigating S&M shops and strip clubs and all these things. And Lethal Weapon, uh, the investigation is part of the movie, but it's not the driving thing of the movie. A lot of the film is very episodic with them, uh, as policemen do, get called onto different... uh, cases, different scenarios. Uh, you know, and, and another thing that makes this movie seem um, uh, more old-fashioned is that it takes time to set up its characters, but beyond that, it takes time to even introduce the bad guy. The bad guy, uh, played by Gary Busey, isn't even a huge focus of the film until the last half. Well, even then, he's not hes not the mastermind. No. He's just no. the, the thug. He's, he's the not. antithesis to Gibson's character. Right. He's the, uh, oh, what's the guy's name? He's the Batman to Gibson's Joker, but assuming that their moralities were reversed. No, I was thinking the uh, the Cobra Kai, what, Reese, is that his name? To Mr. Miyagi? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> oh, boy. And we covered Karate Kid. You can check those episodes out, as well as all the other stuff we've done at SequelCast.com. And uh, if you go on Facebook and search SequelCast, you can talk to us there, too. It's a great way to get in contact with us, and I want to give a shout-out to SequelCast listener Luis, who uh, has been on our case about doing Lethal Weapon for a while. And uh, here they are. You see, you, you say he's on our case to do it. I would say he inspired us to do it. That's a better way to put it. And, you know, we, we've... Uh, when the I started SequelCast, the original graphic on the website I had was screen grabs of a lot of different movies, and one of them was Danny Glover laughing from a, from a Lethal Weapon movie. Um... So it was always my intention to do Lethal Weapon at some point. I just didn't think it would take us 80-something episodes. <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, we can talk a bit about uh, his character trying to kill himself, right? Doesn't that happen? 
And yeah, I think yeah, he's, like, that's where he's watching cartoons. He's like watching cartoons and eating cereal, and and he's got like one bullet that he has like specifically for that or something. Yeah, it's a hollow point bullet. You know, a, basically a an extra strength bullet for lack of a better term. And well, the, the way a hollow point works is the hollow point it it. Uh, it makes it so that the, the bullet expands as it enters you. So the bullet doesn't go through you. It actually stops in your body, and all that kinetic energy is released, and it can you know pulp your bones and organs if done right. Yeah, and uh, there's a reason why they're called man stoppers. <laughs> and there's also things in the film where he has a backstory with the wife of his that. Um, I guess died, and I, but they don't go into it very much. They kind of leave a lot to the imagination. I think. Yeah, I was I always. That's actually that. a really good thing that they mm-hmm. did. That you don't get any flashback sequences. You get a picture of the two of them, and he visits her uh, her grave at the end to put down flowers. I think somebody mentions her dying um, to Danny Clover. Yeah, the police really station mentions it, and it's not like a big giant exposition. It's just. Hey, you know, you you know, you heard about that kind of thing. And the character of uh, Riggs, played by Mel Gibson, is a character that you know was a special forces guy in Vietnam. And maybe she died when he was stationed out in Nam, and he came back, and he was all crazy. I don't know, but like they don't really go into it, and they um, don't need to. But you judge, know, yeah. judging from the, if I can interject, oh, go on. Judging from the pictures. I don't think she died till after he came back. Mm. I mean, I. Uh, but this is something, and, and I don't really feel it's implied. This was just something that, as the film progressed, just started floating in the back of my head. Does anyone here think that Mel Gibson's character might have accidentally killed his own wife? <laughs> no, uh, I'm serious. Like, I'm serious yeah. because because he's clearly came home from that war with a lot of baggage, and he's an expert. He's an expert with with firearms. I mean, I, I, you know, I think they I, said it was I a car crash. People, you know, I know people who who you know come who come back from like the war with that kind of trauma, and you know, you you they you know they can't sleep unless they know there's a gun nearby them because they're just so trained that something could come at any moment, even when they're safe and back in the states. And and what 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 if like he had just a moment and the muscle memory took over. Like, you know, he heard a noise in the night, grabbed the gun, fired, and it was her. Yeah, I, I don't know. And uh, the car crash thing you said, BJ, kind of rings with me. I seem to recall a line of dialogue mentioning a car crash. but uh, Yeah, I do too. But, but that they don't spend a lot of time on it, it is um, really interesting. You certainly get the idea. You uh, One earlier scene, what, he shoots out his TV with his gun? He's just in a really bad mood, and then he goes to buy a new TV, and he's just him and his dog walking on the beach, uh, living in this kind of trailer park. Um, so, uh, but as they're investigating kind of the, the overall stories about um, Murtaugh and Riggs, they got to work together. They're assigned together, and they're, you know, two opposite from each other. And you got uh, the titular line in this movie in which... Uh, Danny Glover is talking about Mel Gibson's character, and he says, oh, you're an expert in karate, you're special forces in Nam. You're, you're like a lethal weapon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the titular line. Yep. Um, and if you want to see a great sketch about titular lines, you need to watch uh, an episode from the first season of Upright Citizens Brigade. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I sure am tired of all these Star Wars... I can't wait to get out of Africa. Yeah, it's a pretty... Mogi pa, mogi pa, mogi, mogi, mogi. <laughs> Watch Upstart Citizens Brigade and maybe you'll understand what we just did. They came out with the Upright Citizens Brigade on DVD um, several years ago. And it might even be on a streaming service, I'm not even sure. But uh, it's anyway, it's a very funny show. Um and as they do research, what they find out is they think that she killed herself with the sleeping pill or by jumping out the window, which did kill her. But it turns out she had sleeping pills in her system that were laced with um, drugs. No, no, the drugs the drugs were laced with chemical with the, the poisons. That's right. It was the cocaine. It, it was the tainted cocaine. What done it? So that that's kind of a thing that they they mentioned several times that if she hadn't fallen from the building she still would have died. 
And yet, you know, they don't... It's interesting they don't concentrate on that case so much because you get a very famous scene where there's a guy trying to jump from a building that they have to try and save. And he's not a guy that's tied into the plot at all. It's just a, a random case they're called to. And uh, what happens here, BJ? BJ? Uh, hello? Yes, can hello? you hear us? Yes. Sorry, uh, Skype bugged out on me there. What okay. was that? Uh, we were saying, um, can you describe what you think about the scene where uh, Mel Gibson goes to the guy that's trying to jump and kill himself jumping off the uh, building? See, I, I kind of had a, a feeling he was going to... You, you can just get in the idea of the, the way the Mel Gibson character was. You knew he was up to something. You knew he had something planned that he wasn't actually going to jump because he knew he was going to die too. I, I think he'd already come to terms with, I'm not going to commit suicide right now. Hmm. I don't know. Like Several of Mel Gibson's actions in this film do seem to be predicated on him not, not caring if he's going to die, like right. during the drug bust or, or doing, doing with the suicide jumper. The one, thing, the one thing about the jumper scene that really struck me out is after you know, he, he uses some quick reflexes to get himself handcuffed, handcuffed to the jumper... Why wasn't, like, shouldn't the stress of, like, I mean, like I'm looking at the jump, and I can't think of any way he could, like, they could have done that without their wrists being broken as they came down. I assume if he grabbed the guy's hand and had a good hold on it so that they weren't being pulled by the handcuffs. Oh, but, but they weren't holding hands. I actually went, I actually checked. Hmm. I mean, yeah, but they, the thing they fell on is a real thing that they use. Which they were able to set up without anybody noticing. <laughs> I'm sure they were already kind of getting ready to set it up. But think about it. If Mel Gibson suddenly crawled out onto the ledge with you and started acting the way he acted, you'd probably be a little distracted. Yeah, by that mullet of his. Jeez. No. Um. <laughs> it's not quite a mullet. It's not really short enough in the front. There's a lot of business in the back. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of like, it's more like a, like a man per. Hmm. I gotcha. Uh, I mean, yeah, I always see this scene's very famous. I think it's a little bit silly, but uh, you just kind of need something to show that how how reckless this guy can be. And afterwards, you have a scene where he's uh, Riggs is confronted by Murtaugh, and. Uh, saying, you know, if you want to kill yourself, why don't you do it right now? And um, Riggs pulls out a, his gun and holds it against himself and says, I'll pull the trigger, I'll do it, I'll do it. And it's very tense, it's a very dark, uh, disturbing scene. And it also builds the character, you know, they're sort of establishing trust with each other. Well, see, I think... I don't think he intended to... You know, to definitely didn't intend to die jump from jumping because if you think about it, he was special forces. Yeah, and so he and he's a cop and he knows I have a job to do and I've got to get this guy down safely. So, and it's it's he he can while he may want to die, he still has that sense of duty, that sense of uh, of his of I've got to do my job. And that's why he waits until after to, you know, threaten to shoot himself. Mm -hmm. When he's not really on the job any right at the moment. Well, do you think some of the scenes afterwards in which um, Riggs gets to meet Murtaugh's family are a bit cheesy? or I loved those scenes. It oh, was yeah? Just, it was super humanizing for both of the characters. And it helped. It gave the movie an, an, a real sense of reality. It, it did not take place in, like that action movie pseudo-reality. Like, it it just, it grounded so much of the film. Yeah, I mean, their kitchen... I love the family, because it actually, you know, you always wonder, well, why don't they go, why doesn't the bad guy go after the, the guy's family? Well, in this, you know, in the Lethal Weapon movies, the family is constantly getting targeted. It's a very logical, you know, their bad guys are actually really, you know, they think like real bad guys. Oh, you know what I loved about the family... You you can see it 
uh, prominently featured in frame in two scenes, once early in the film and once, you know, later uh, when uh, when Gary Busey's character uh, breaks into Glover's home. But on on their refrigerator is an end apartheid magnet. Hmm. I, that is so that is so awesome. Um, I mean, also, you know, the, the kitchen is a mess. The food the uh, the wife cooks for him is pretty... Um, subpar. Yeah, pretty subpar, to say the least, and there's jokes about that. I, and, I like those little running gags. I, I, like, I like the joke that for dessert, they have basically Pop-Tarts. They're, they're pre-wrapped pastries from a cardboard box. I think that's, uh, that's very charming. It's not a homemade pie or pudding or whatever. It's just these kind of snacky cakes that they're eating. There's nothing wrong with Little Debbie. Nope. Well, the last thing we, we, Debbie, get to, we I really the whole, get to see... Oh, yes? I love the whole bit about um, that they, you know, Danny Glover's like, don't you look at my daughter that way. I, She's I looking at him. The, the father to come at it. Yeah, but he, then he looks at, at him instead of her. <laughs> it, it's such a great, like, you know, father-daughter type relationship. It's It's... Well, it's more of that father-daughter relationship. I love that. I love that. There's that little aside about how his daughter is grounded because she was she was caught uh, smoking a joint in the house. And she makes the point. Well, why can't you know? Why am I in trouble for that? And would I be in as much trouble if you caught me drinking? And he's like, "Well, drinking is legal, but grass isn't. At least not yet." Yep. And uh, you know, it's an interesting point. It's sort of a double standard, but he. Uh, did you have something to share with the rest of the class, BJ? I think uh, BJ's taking a poop or he dropped something. I'm not sure. One of the two. I guess if you take a poop, you're dropping something, but that's a... Oh, dear. <laughs> hey, you know what I like? That gunshot wounds bleed in this movie. Yeah, but it's not a lot of blood. I mean, like some of the other stuff we've talked about. Okay, you get you do have some topless women and you have the language, but the violence I don't think would get you an R today. Well, it's I I, I maybe maybe not, but well, no, I think it would because because of the blood. Because when hmm. I, I really don't like sanitized violence, so I really liked it in this movie when someone gets shot, blood comes out of the room. They don't just have some gunpowder stains on their shirt and then fall backwards. I mean, these care like like we talk about in Die Hard. There are phys- there are real physical and bodily consequences for the violence that the characters get involved in. Right. Um, so as the movie gets in the halfway mark, more or less, which is what we're talking about, uh, you, you introduced to the bad guy, played by Gary Busey, uh, Mr. Joshua, who has really blonde hair. He doesn't talk very much, and he is. Just really intimidating. I think one of his uh, cronies is interrogating someone, and uh, Gary Busey's character tortures them by kind of holding a lighter underneath their arm. No, no, that's the lighter is being held under Gary Busey's arm to show how crazy, psychotic, badass he is. I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. I got that switched around. It's just such a. It's a twisted scene. The thing is, like. When, when I was watching that scene, it was it was so disturbing seeing someone just hold that lighter under his arm and him just not being phased. I could actually smell the flesh mm. cracking and, and bubbling and burning. Yeah, I hope they did not do too many takes of that scene. Uh, well, I'm sure they they had some effects or you know heat some heat dispersal gel in his arm or something or a prop arm for all I know. But it a and it's a very arm. effective scene. It is. It sets up the character you know kind of visually. And I like that afterwards, Gary Busey's boss, the, the kingpin, has to tell him to get the the cigarette or to get the lighter wound looked at, because like he he the, the Busey's character probably wouldn't think to do that. Yeah. Um. So I mean, what's another scene in this film is what they're trying to investigate. Uh, you get a, a neat scene, I think, that has a very cheesy joke that's in a lot of '80s movies where they're at the firing range, and you get to see how great a shot everyone is. And uh, well, You know what I, what I d- couldn't buy about that uh, firing range scene? Like, I could totally buy the, the gun tricks they do. What I couldn't buy is that they go to the shooting range 
which is loaded with cops practicing, to have a detailed and in-depth conversation about the case while they're wearing noise-canceling headphones. Right. I mean, they're... BJ, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, great. Um, the thing that just bugged me about... I mean, yeah, it is weird. You're trying to incorporate action in an exposition scene is what you're doing. And they're trying to see, oh, uh, who are potential suspects? Hey, maybe the uh, the hooker that talked to us, maybe she knew the hooker that jumped out of the building. Oh, we should track her down and see what her name is. And uh, uh, But you, you get a scene know. where Mel Gibson shows off how much he can shoot, and he shoots a smiley face, and he says, have a nice day. And that's a reference to a very common, I guess it's a, a poster or a sticker. There was a smiley face that said, have a nice day. Yeah, the smiley pin. The movie Dick Tracy uh, had this exact same kind of joke. I don't know. Are you, are you sure they weren't just the reason they were wearing the the noise canceling uh, earmuffs was just so that they wouldn't have people nitpicking about them being at a firing range without earmuffs on? Well, hey, speaking of nitpicking, if you notice when Mel Gibson's the the character, which is in special forces and you know has all sorts of firearm training. Is, is shooting in the shooting range, you'll notice he keeps closing his eyes as he pulls the trigger. That's a very amateur mistake when using any kind of firearm. And it's done... Unless it. he's just that badass. <laughs> <laughs> see, that's how you gotta think... Well, the reason why that people do that a lot, and you see uh, Mike Myers does that as Austin Powers in those movies, too, is... Uh, when you, when you shoot... Oh, is that... Well, that's a comedy, and like realism isn't a big factor. Well, there. even when you're shooting off blanks in a gun, the noise is so loud. If you're not used to it, you'll flinch like that. And oh, I know, but that's that's why that's why when you get like when you get training, whether it's whether it's you know military training or taking a, a firearm safety or hunting course, that's that's part of it. Is you have to train yourself to to not to not blink uh, as you're pulling the trigger. Right. This is why I prefer the crossbow or the bow and arrow. <laughs> Much like a certain John so I'm intimidating, I think. You're like, oh, everybody's got a pistol. Dude pulls out a crossbow, you're like, oh, shit. And those bolts see, that's are... What they should have, see, Mel Gibson should have had a crossbow in the movie. Because he, he would have been even more of a loose cannon. He would have been <laughs> like a John J. Rambo himself, yeah. And the crossbow would have been the lethal weapon. Very good. Um, you get a nice scene kind of kicking off near the end of the film where they're trying to track down this potential witness and the house explodes. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because they're talking to the kids and they're trying to see, oh, is he a white man? What does the guy look like? And he points to the tattoo on Mel Gibson's arm and says he has that same tattoo, which is a Special Forces Vietnam tattoo. And as soon as he describes it, you know, Mel Gibson knows exactly who it is, even though it's not somebody he worked with. It's someone that had been a, a member on his uh, Special Forces unit, just not when he was part of that same unit. You know what I like about that scene is when Danny Glover is, like, talking to the kids. How, how old are you? Mel Gibson's and laughing the entire time. <laughs> but, like, the it's, kid says, like, it's just like watching Bill Cosby on Kids Say the Darnest Things. <laughs> oh, that, that was Except better because it's Danny Glover. Great. Yeah. I'm getting too old for this flippin' floppum. <laughs> I'm too but old for this. Out is when he when the kid I'm says his age, Danny Glover's like, oh, six years old. I bet you like GoBots, don't you? <laughs> that that really dates the movies, I think, because unless you were alive at that time, you don't know GoBots. But GoBots we were a knockoff Transformers, and I wish the kid would have said, fuck no, I like Transformers. We, no man, Thundercats. No, actually, I was I was poking around. This this movie uh, was, of course, done by you know released by Warner Brothers, which is the same company uh, that owned the publishing company that did all the GoBots tie-in uh, <laughs> books and publications. So maybe there's some weird product integration. It was, wasn't it Tonka that, that runs that had the GoBots? That owned yeah, the Tonka GoBots? Tonka created the GoBots before Hasbro bought uh, bought the IP to shut it down. But you said Warner Brothers published like GoBots comic books and stuff like that. Yeah, Warner, right? Warner Brothers, the uh, a publishing company owned by Warner Brothers, published all the uh, GoBots tie-in print material. Gotcha. Um, 
So did I mean, they produce the cartoon? Uh, no, the cartoon was actually done by Hanna Barbera. Huh. Which is a Time Warner company now. So I don't know if it was then or not. That's uh, very very complicated. I'm not following that at all. Um, back. Ah, uh, animation. Yeah, back to Lethal Weapon. Um, you got the climax of the film is, is fairly extended, and it sort of kicks off where what they go home, and uh, Danny Glover realizes his oldest daughter is uh, kidnapped, but the rest of the family was not. Oh wait, but before that. Right, Danny Glover and Mel Gibson meet up with Danny Glover's partner, who's the father of the girl that killed herself, and they're trying to pump him for information. Yes, and he gets shot by a sniper while holding a carton of eggnog, so the bullet goes through the eggnog, so we get the spray of eggnog as he's shot and toppling. I can't believe you didn't make a pumping full of lead joke there. That would have been... For information. Yeah, that would have been good. That's a missed opportunity. Thank you, BJ. Um, it's an interesting sort of scene. It's a tease. You get, you know, a bit more of the Gary Busey character, but they don't meet face to face. But, oh, this guy's badass. He's a sniper guy shooting from a helicopter. What I don't get is how do they have a helicopter in the air and they can't track down this guy by the helicopter? Well, the helicopter had to have some sort of markings on it. You know, that's a very good point. You'd think they could, like, put in a description on the helicopter, find out where like, such a vehicle hey, is registered. I need, a, I, need to, I need to know who owns the helicopter with, you know, XYZ designation on it. I need to know, have any of you seen a helicopter in Los Angeles? I'm trying to find <laughs> one. Uh, I mean, I, I almost would have... Bought it even if uh, Mel Gibson and his rigs would have somehow climbed in a palm tree and tried to jump into the helicopter as it was taken off. He's well, the thing crazy. is, is like the house that they go to because it's a banker's house is like this nice, you know, fancy house yep. that's on like a sea cliff. So, and like the hel- that's where the helicopter's hiding is it's hiding under the cliff and it rises up. But when it flies away, it dips down again. Why not have Mel Gibson do a flying leap and grab onto the <laughs> helicopter's tail? But then again, that's a level of cartoonish action that this film successfully avoids. Right, and uh, that's not the case with uh, some of the sequels, I believe. But, um, right, I mean, you have all that happening, and uh, on top of all this... Uh, you have it where they go home, and uh, one of Danny Glover's daughter, the older one that uh, has a crush on Mel Gibson, is kidnapped, but they didn't kidnap any of the other kids. And you, you get a really interesting kind of showdown off in the desert where it's a meeting place that they're told to, to go and, and get the daughter and stuff. And uh, it's interesting because uh, you, you kind of see Murtaugh is almost playing the Riggs part, where he kind of goes in supposedly by himself, but meanwhile Riggs is off in the distance with a sniper rifle ready to pick off um, Mr. Joshua if the timing is right. And uh, I think it's a real suspenseful scene that um, Murtaugh does it with a live grenade in his hand you know, threatening to blow everyone up even his own daughter is an interesting touch. Well, you know, one thing that, that, that jumped out uh, at me on that is where where did Mel Gibson get that sniper rifle? Did he just happen to have it, or did they check that out? I think they would have had um, to go back to the police uh, station and checked out. It some wouldn't surprise me weaponry. if he had one. Oh no, could be. No, I, I, I think he, you know he might just have one. Just he's they've already established that he's you know he was a sniper, so he probably has a rifle. Oh, you know what I like, though, is that at this point the bad guys think Mel Gibson's character is dead because they orchestrated a drive-by while he and Glover were, were trying to get some information from some prostitutes. And the, But the only one they managed to hit is Gibson, who falls back through a shop window. They just assume he's dead. So the police start planting stories that he died in the line of duty. You know, they're trying to give an element of surprise to make it seem like uh, Danny Glover is just really all by himself. And you get a good action scene, and uh, in a lot of the climax, the good guys are continuously losing. They get captured, they get tortured, right? 
Oh, yeah. Oh, and do you know who tortures Mel Gibson with the car battery? Um, this Asian guy was in Big Trouble in Little China, is that it's, right? It's Al Long. He he played the Asian thug in Die Hard, Yeah, and he's also Genghis Khan in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. But wasn't he in Big Trouble in Little China, or no? Uh, I'm looking that up now. He was in a lot of... He has a very recognizable face. He has the long hair. Yes, he was. And the mustache. He was okay. Wing Kong Hat the Hatchet Man. Gotcha, right, yeah. That sounds right. He was also in a movie called Big Trouble as Chinese laborer number two. Huh. Pretty cool. Um, hold on, my computer's going boop boop. Beep boop, beep boop. Come on, fat cat. You weigh 20 fucking pounds. Oh, it's my dad calling. I will decline and tell him I'm doing my show. That's why the Indeed. sequel cast is so exciting. Uh, well, it, ju- it just proves that these shows are live, regardless of when or where you listen to them. Great. Okay, so we should wrap this up in about 15 minutes. Uh, yeah, I think that the ending of this is really interesting to get tortured. They all kind of fight back. Um, and uh, Mel Gibson in particular, I think, really sells his screams as he's being tortured. It's painful to watch, even though it's not an especially gory scene. It's a very believable torture sequence. I think so. It's, uh, it's dark, it's disturbing, uh, all these things. Um, and I think, you know, it really, it really, even though the bad guys don't get a lot of speeches and so forth in the movie, it, it's effective and it makes you hate them, makes you know these guys mean business. Uh, so, that, that I think is pretty interesting to see. Um, furthermore, uh, there, one thing that really struck me as weird is the, the good guys get away and... But they're still, like, under fire trying to chase down Mr. Joshua, played by Gary Busey. And they go through, like, a nightclub that's connected to this um, kind of basement that they're stuck in. And they start shooting... Well, the shooting. nightclub is a front for the heroin, international heroin smuggling that it turns out the bad guys are behind. But they start shooting at people indiscriminately in the uh, nightclub. No, it's not indiscriminately. They're all, they're, all pe- they're all thugs who try to stop them. It's just that there's all these people and one stray bullet could could lead to some could change self-defense into manslaughter. Right. It's, it's certainly a bit chaotic. You get some pretty cool car chases in there. And then at the end of the film, uh, you get an interesting kind of face-off where Mr. Joshua breaks into Danny Glover's house trying to find him, and there's a note saying, oh, it's just us good guys and you. The family's nowhere to be seen. And then the police car drives through the side of the house, into the house, into the living room, and they come out and they cuff him. And well, no, movie- no, 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 because when, when the car crashes through the window, Busey just unloads, thinking that they're in the car. Right, but they're not Busey's in the car. all of his ammunition, and then Gibson comes around the corner with a gun and takes them, because they were able to outwit him with that distraction. And then they have a fist fight in the, uh, on the lawn. Which I think yeah, is the a fist bit- fight I didn't buy, because they have Busey at their mercy, there are cops there, and there's backup coming, but then they decide to let Busey go so that he and Gibson can have a fight in the front yard. I think it's it, it, it comes down to this, like, new warrior honor thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we were both the same, and you sunk to this. I'm going to beat the crap out of you. I'm not just going to arrest you. I think not I'm only that, you've just seen the good guys being tortured for a bit, and you want to see this guy get his comeuppance, and if they just would have slapped the cups on him and go... Now you're going to jail, buddy. It, it would have been a little bit anticlimactic, but it, it's very silly. They have this extended scene where they're kicking each other. They both have nightsticks at one point, and you, you see uh, Mel Gibson's character using the martial arts he knows, and Gary Busey kind of uses more wrestling moves. I think it is a pile drive at some point. Um, and it's an exciting. I, just, I think I would have enjoyed just Mel Gibson kicking him in the nuts. Well, I think Gibson's style is supposed to be capoeira, because there is a capoeira instructor credited in this movie. Mm, with all the kicks, you mean, yeah. Well, with movie that. martial arts, they really mix a lot of styles. Hmm. Um, and capoeira would never use a, uh, a tonfa uh, or a nightstick. Uh, it's a very Japanese weapon. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's movie martial arts, you know, it's generic whatever. 
his capoeira, he would be he would look like he was dancing. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a neat action sequence. It goes on, I think, for a bit too long, and you get like a dozen cops watching him have this fight. It stretches credibility a bit, but I don't know. It, it, it's kind of satisfying at the same time. But in the end, uh, Busey is defeated. He is. And um, Riggs comes and drops off his uh, bullet that he was planning to kill himself with at some point and decides to leave it for Murtaugh as a gift. But before he can escape, before Murtaugh sees him, Murtaugh walks out and catches him and says, Hey, we're having a shitty Thanksgiving or a shitty Christmas turkey dinner. Can you enjoy this with me? And, um, yeah, they decide to have dinner together as the family again, and he brings his dog along. Sam the dog. As opposed to a lot of... Go ahead, Will. Oh, I was saying, yes, Sam the dog, who now gets to meet Danny Glover's Burbank the cat. And you don't see that happening, but it's all these goofy sound effects of things breaking. (laughs) It's very light. Yeah. What was that, BJ? What What I like about this is that you... You, while it's a buddy cop movie, uh-huh. they don't feel like just buddies anymore. They actually feel like they've gotten to be real partners and to be, you know, family. Just right. the way they've set it up, especially with that uh, whole sequence at the end. As opposed to something like Rush Hour, where it's just like, you know, or what's the one with Jackie Chan would do with Owen Wilson? Oh, crap. Shanghai Nights? Shanghai Noon? Yeah. They're just they're still very buddyish, but you have a real sense of, you know, the characters have so much depth compared to most buddy cop movies that, that you really feel that they have grown and that they care about each other. Yeah, and at the end of the movie, it reminds me a bit of Die Hard, not because of all the Christmas stuff, but although that helps, but you have a uh, piece of music playing at the very end that, is it a Elvis cover of a Christmas song or something? What song was it? I can't, I can't remember. Mm. Well, there, there's I'll Be Home for Christmas. It sounds kind of Elvisy. I know he did Blue Christmas. He may have done a version of I'll Be Home for Christmas. Let me look it up. Let me see what the album had on it. Though it's not on the soundtrack album. That's bizarre. Anyway. Well, the soundtrack is different than whatever the... um, It's it's weird as to what belongs on a soundtrack album and what doesn't. Uh Uh-huh. I I think I gave an example when we did Karate Kid of a song that had played in one sequence, but it wasn't on any of the soundtracks, and it took me forever to find. Yeah, and then it says you with licensing issues... um... And, you know, sometimes when they play these things on TV, it doesn't always have the same music either. Uh, so. Although, after, although once the credits start rolling, after that uh, White Christmas thing, we get the best song. I didn't stick around for that. What was it? Oh, God, you didn't? No, no. Okay, no, no. All right. Once the credits start rolling, you sit through it because this power ballad starts. You know, like, sometimes love is hard. It's just like such an eighties power ballad. Uh-huh. But the core. But I swear, this is how. Sometimes love is the lethal weapon. <laughs> they work the title into the song. Jeez, I mean that was common for the time too. Well, well, I think it's the one of the thing is it's not a song that explains the plot of the movie. It's just a power ballad that works lethal weapon into the song in a nonsensical way. Yeah. Wow, th- this is disturbing. He listed here on Wikipedia about a possible remake without either Gibson or Glover. And they've also been but talking about doing a. They were almost Jack got Black and Chris Rock. <laughs> uh, well, Chris Rock was in Lethal Weapon Four, but yeah, but uh, no, I just was listening to a clip of that song. That's horrendous. Off to text it on the end of the, the show. It's plain to see that love is a lethal weapon. <laughs> uh, he, yeah, right. He, you're right. No, Chris Rock character marries 
or is dating or marries the daughter uh, of Danny Glover, and then they think he's gay or something. That's in the fourth one, but spoilers. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> boring. Like these movies are out in the theaters right now. We're gonna spoil it for people. And oh boy, howdy! Speaking of movies in the theaters, did you guys notice that you could that what was on the movie marquees in the background of a couple of scenes? Uh, one of them was Lost Boys, yep. and um, I think originally Richard Donner was supposed to direct that, but it ended up he ended up just producing it, and it was directed by uh, Joel Schumacher. But uh, later, towards I think the one end, of them was Predator. I Ooh, thought yeah. it was like a Terminator or a Predator reference or something. But also, when they're talking to the prostitutes before uh, before Gibson gets shot, uh, there is a uh, there's a porno theater and it's got on the marquee "Debbie Does Dallas" and "Star Angels." I know "Debbie Does Dallas" is a real title. Starring Robin Bird, boom. And "Star Angels" is that a real uh, vintage seventies porn? I, I'm sure it is, but I couldn't find any information of it. And you know me, I do my research on that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. One of these days, we'll have to do a porno uh, series. God. <laughs> Flesh Gordon 1 and 2. Uh, that, those are, the, only, yeah, but only the first one is a porno in that series. I see. The um, second is a well, terrible actually, comedy of, with some know, nudity. Don't they have like a pirate series that, that's got really high production values? They yeah, do. I, I think and, it's called uh, Pirates. There's also the big series of these things where it's called So and So and XXX parody, like Avatar, Triple X parody. Uh, they they did a, a Batman uh, one based on the Batman TV show. Oh, actually, there's several Batman there's several Batman pornos out now. Jeez. In one of them, the Joker has a sexy sidekick, but it's not Harley Quinn. Oh. It's like a weird, like female, multicolored female clown. But what's amazing is I was at MegaCon. Uh, two weekends ago, and at Megacon there was a group of cosplayers dressed as different Batman uh, villains. There was a really cool Catwoman, a really cool Joker, and there was a woman in it who was the sidekick from the porno. She wasn't Harley Quinn, she was the mm. porno. <laughs> wow. I believe Jason's got a photo. We'll, we'll try to get Jersey Jason to post it to the blog or something. That's awfully specific. Uh, yes! I love it! Yeah, so I mean, I guess in in closing, would we recommend Lethal Weapon? I certainly would. It holds up much better than I think uh, a lot of action films from the 80s do. It uh, has a lot of character to it, introduces you to these characters, and I'm curious to see what the sequels will bring uh, next. Yeah, I recommend it as well. I, I, I enjoy viewing this. BJ? I, I, I liked it. I definitely, yeah. definitely liked it. One interesting note about director's cuts and so forth. Um, so when these came out on DVD, uh, Lethal Weapon 1, 2, and 3 came out in director's cuts, but apparently only Lethal Weapon 1 was an actual director's cuts. The uh, Lethal Weapon 2 and 3 so-called director's cuts are really just uh, where the studio just lumped in deleted scenes into the film, but the director wasn't really involved. And um, so that's kind of bizarre trivia. And uh, I'm just saying that because uh, in, uh, like, June or July or something, they come out in the United States with uh, all four lethal weapons on Blu-ray. And for that, the first one is director's cut, and the rest are all the theatrical cuts um, with the deleted scenes as extras. So that's kind of interesting. And I think... You know, I I have to say, it's funny that Lethal Weapon 4 was the first DVD I ever owned. It was one of the launch... Because they gave it away at a football game. Wow. You get to see Danny Glover in his underwear fighting the guy with the flamethrower. Uh, right? I haven't seen it in so long. I okay. think I lost that one in Katrina. So I hey, spoilers! <laughs> My first job, I was working in a movie theater, and it was the summer that Lethal Weapon 4 came out. So, Yep. Alright, we should uh, wrap this up. Uh... Our theme song for the show is done with Mark with a C at uh, markwithac.bandcamp.com. You can check out his latest stuff on there. Um, we have a sponsor, uh, Stitcher. Uh, Stitcher is an app or a program for your computer or your smartphone where you can listen to podcasts streaming on the go, a real convenient way to do it, and SQLcast is on there. If you go to stitcher.com, S-T-I-T-C-H-E-R.com, slash SQLcast, 
you can sign up for it that way, and you get sequel cost uh, automatically added as uh, one of your favorite shows on there. So uh, that helps us out a little bit. And um, what else? What we got a blog, sequelcast.blogspot.com. Yep. Uh, I'm working on putting together a video uh, talking about the different. Um, how do I put this? Uh, talking about the Nintendo and Super Nintendo Lethal Weapon video games, which are pretty horrendous. Uh, well, actually, I'm I'm working on a piece on music in movies with the titular line in the music. Very good. There's a lot of those. And sometimes love is a lethal weapon. Um, BJ, any closing thing you want to talk about? No, not really. Um, all right, aren't aren't we going to describe sequels? Yeah. Yes, I almost forgot. Oh my goodness, we'll That's do our like pitch my a sequel part of all this. <laughs> The you creative stick, part. You stick around for an hour just for the last five minutes. Uh, we're going to wrap this up right with our pitch a sequel game. Pretend the other sequels did not happen. And uh, what would the sequel to Lethal Weapon 1 be, ideally, with this uh, pretending the sequels do not exist? Um, my pitch, I think it would take place uh, several years later. And um, Murtaugh and Riggs are at the same nursing home. And meanwhile, Murtaugh's daughter has decided to join the police department, and uh, she's about to turn 40, and she's saying, I'm getting too old for this shit. And uh, something happens where she has to go on an adventure, and she has to take along her old father and his old friend, the aged Murtaugh and Riggs, out of a retirement home, not just out of retirement, uh, to go on one last adventure. Is Murtaugh going to learn that there was a daughter he never knew he had? Sure. Why not? You got to give her a female partner. I think so. And and you'll have the. Yeah, they have to have a female partner. Somewhere in there, because it turns out his daughter is became a lesbian, as she got older. So, uh, Thrasher, what's your pitch for pitch a sequel? Okay, my my pitch is that it, it really doesn't matter how much later this is. It could be. It could be the it could be the summer after this movie. It could be a few years down the line. But um, Gibson and Glover, their characters are still really good friends. So Glover invites uh, Gibson out on his boat. It's going to take him fishing on the ocean, and it's going to be great. They're going to have a great time. They're going to do this in Lethal Weapon Four, but go on. Well, they stole it from me when I pitched this as the sequel. Okay. Uh, so, so they're out fishing. Uh, however, while while fishing, they end up seeing some drug smuggling go down on the open seas. And so then they're now wanted by drug smugglers, and so they've got to take the drug smugglers down. And all the while, their only mode of transportation is Glover's boat, which gets perpetually beat up. Mm-hmm. And just like, you know, g- g- it takes all sorts of cool battle damage. And they uh, my boat's getting too leaky for this shit. You know, that, that'll be his catchphrase. What do you think this is, a leaky weapon? There you go. <laughs> Boing. <laughs> Lethal Weapon 2, the leaky weapon. I like it. Uh, BJ. <laughs> if I, uh, I honestly wouldn't make a sequel to it. Okay. I, I think that this would have been a great standalone... Um, and then just and just build on the the Mel Gibson, um, Danny Glover, you know, screen presence. You know, do another movie with them. Just don't make it Lethal Weapon. However, if I'm going to make Lethal Weapon two, so this is a couple of years later. Uh, Danny Glover's daughter is uh, just, you know twenty something like that. She's in college, and it's her wedding day, and who's she marrying? But Mel Gibson. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> some. And so it there, and then something terrible goes wrong at the wedding. Like a Colombian drug cartel breaks in and abducts the daughter from the wedding. And Danny Glover, who was protesting the whole thing, wasn't actually there. Um, so he he and and Riggs has to come to him and tell him what's happening. And he's still in the tuxedo. And just and this time um, we get it the other way around. Danny Glover goes kind of crazy trying to save his daughter. And Mel Gibson's trying to be a little more sane. And his line is, this tux is a rental. <laughs> it's pretty good. I, uh, Leave the weapon to robbing the cradle. I had one last idea really quick. Uh, you also could do a prequel about uh, rigs in Vietnam. Well, Ooh. Danny Glover was in Vietnam as well. 
So you could do kind of a double thing. Oh, Maybe yeah. they have a crossover where they meet, but they just don't remember it. That could be. Ooh, what what if Burbank the cat and Sam the dog had to fight some sort of crime? <laughs> That's a lethal woof woofs. <laughs> lethal mammals. Lethal woofing. Lethal petting. Lethal buddies. <laughs> there you go. Jesus. God damn it. And God, some yeah, somehow you have you have Mel Gibson and uh Danny Glover do the voice of their own dog and cat. Oh, yeah. I'm getting too old for this litter. <laughs> I'd love to see maybe, maybe see this combined with... Uh, what's what's the one with Judge Reinhold and he switches places with the kid? Oh. I was just thinking that the cat, like, they could serve the cat some, like, wet cat food. I'm getting too old for this fish. Ugh. Hey, wasn't Jersey Jason going to regale us with his Danny Glover impersonation? Well, that'll have to wait for next episode, I'm afraid. I guess so. so until next time, uh, uh, tune in next week when we talk about... Thanks for knocking stuff over, Cat. I appreciate that. Um, next week, we'll talk about Lethal Weapon 2. No, you're going to fuck up the computer. Stop it, Cat. Uh, okay. Until Wait, next time. The, the episode ends. like, you're going to fuck up the computer, and then there's all this like modem static. So until next time, for the sequel cast, uh, this is Matt. Thrasher. And BJ. Saying, uh, let's say we're getting too old for this shit. One, two, three. I'm getting too old old for this this shit. shit. Yeah, okay. That doesn't work at all. But, well, that's what we (laughs) have. It never does. (laughs) No, I'm going to close it with that cheesy-ass love is a lethal weapon number. I hope that doesn't offend Mark with a C. (laughs) I I don't think so. I think... uh, I mean, what do you... Did you like the lyrics I put on Twitter for a potential Lethal Weapon song? Where it's, he's a good cop on the streets and a bad cop in the sheets. He's a Lethal Weapon. (laughs) No, that would be for the the rap kind of hip-hop version that explains the movie. By Bobby Brown in the end credits. I like it. I think this is too early in the 80s for that. Oh, no. Oh, I think Rodney. you have to get a little more to the to the really the mid '80s for that to really take off. Love's alive, set you free. When it's gone, it's plain to see how even love can become a lethal weapon when you lose.